Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Sister Moira de Bono on the topic, The Empowerment of the Sacraments. This July 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Sister Moira de Bono is a religious sister of mercy of Alma, Michigan, and is a lecturer at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. So, you know, we, we have this line by some, this Sir Francis Bacon, who's not a theologian, but what did he say? He talks about how knowledge is power. And we also have another phrase, to know is to love. And I'd like to take both those things together so that you do learn something more about the sacraments, so that we see what effects the sacraments have within our lives in order to empower us. Now, empower is a word, at least in the States, it often gets overused. But I want, I want to use it because I can't think of a better word when we talk about, you know, why do we celebrate the sacraments in the first place? Um, now, I obviously, we can't go into um, as much as, as we, might, we might possibly at, over a series of, uh, a series of meetings. Um, so I'm sort of jumping in the middle with the assumption that you know the seven sacraments. Can I say that? Of course. Of course I can say that. All right. Now, if I say to you, you're, you are a sacramental. What do you think? Of it? What do you think about that? Would you agree with that phrase? Why would you agree with that phrase? Anyone want to try it? Oh, temple of the Holy Spirit. All right, temple of the Holy Spirit. But what makes a person sacramental? Sign. How do we sign? You got it right. But. <laughs> What? A sign for God? For God. Okay, all right. When we talk about being sacramental, we're set aside for God because we've been consecrated. How have we been consecrated? Everyone here, not just religious, but everyone here has already been consecrated. In baptism. Through baptism, we're set apart. Okay? We're set apart just like the chosen people were in the Old Testament. And we're set apart in order, I want to say, in order to be sacramental. What were the chosen people to be? And then we, we jump and say, as people of God, we do the same thing. What were the chosen people? When you think about the Old Testament, you think about the stories of the Old Testament, what were these Israelites as a people? You know, we often talk about them being sacramental. Sacraments of theologians do it. <laughs> Why? Why? Was it a form of mediation of sorts? Yes. In other words, when we talk about something sacramental, we say that a sacrament is a sign of what? Of something beyond what seems obvious. Right? Okay? Like the full definition. It signs what's that something beyond, and it also very much makes it present. And when we talk about sacraments of the seven sacraments, that we have grace present. When we're sacramental, we are supposed to be signing something beyond ourselves. 
And what is that supposed to be for each of us who are baptized? Would be we're configured to Christ. Okay, I'm sorry, it's almost like a lecture here, but that's accurate. <laughs> um, I, I, you have the answers. I want to show you that you really know. Okay, we're, we're configured. We're to be configured to Christ, conformed to Christ, and so we are to sign Christ for the rest of the world, right? Whether as a people or as individuals. God help us. How in the world can we do How do we accomplish that kind of a reality? Well, Paul says that we're never given more than we can handle. And we also believe that everything that we are asked to do in life, we are given the means in order to do it. All right? Did you know that? You have, you have to believe this. It's very true. And what are the means in order to be conformed to Christ? Where did, what are these means? But sacramental graces. This would be one of the elements. The sacramental grace. The seven sacraments are celebrations, not just to intersperse our week or to come into our lives once or twice and we don't think about them anymore. But they all have effects that are to remain with us to allow us to conform ourselves to Christ. So, does this make sense? Like when we're baptized, we say we're set apart. We are to, we're baptized into his paschal mystery. His paschal mystery is what? His death, resurrection, and ascension. Okay, passion, death, resurrection, and good you said ascension. Most people don't say that. Okay, that's the whole Paschal mystery. Okay? And so that when we celebrate any of the sacraments, we are celebrating a particular... Um, I hate this is our little word for tonight, but it's... Uh, um, you know, we have our, our symbol for Christ and, we, and the Paschal mystery, the cross that each of the seven sacraments are participations, participations in the death, the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. What does it mean to participate? Um, in the Paschal Mystery, in a particular way. Well, in baptism, we say that we die, we rise with Christ, our sins are forgiven, we're made um, part of the body of Christ, Right? These, these are the things that I want to go over. What does it mean to be part of the body of Christ? What about penance? What is the, what is the particular participation in the Paschal Mystery of Penance? That's the easy one. Well, in a practical way for us as humans, what is it? It is a death. It could be a death. Death is... Okay, all right. What happens? What's the effect of penance? We're restored to grace. Our sins are forgiven, right? Jesus said at the Last Supper, you know, that that this cup, my blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. It's very clear, okay? So our sins are forgiven. We're brought back into relationship with God, but we're also brought back into relationship with what else? The church, okay? The church. All right. So that's why what I want to look at are the effects of the various sacraments in a theological way, but then also to integrate them to say how how one how one sacrament the effects of one sacrament they're not we can't pigeonhole it. 
But we have to say, when I'm baptized and I have these effects because of my baptism, that that's going to, that's going to uh, affect me in other ways as well with other sacraments. In other words, in other words, when we're baptized, when we're confirmed especially, what's the impact of my being confirmed and then I undertake the sacrament of matrimony? What's the interrelationship of the effects of confirmation with matrimony? Did you ever think of that? In canon law, it says you have you must be confirmed unless there's a very grave reason before marriage. Now, why in the world would that be in canon law? We know that canon law is always for the salvation of souls. It's not just because they wanted to make a lot of rules and make a fat book. <laughs> All right? But, there's, so there's a reason. The effect of confirmation, there's something about confirmation that you have once in your life that is going to actually participate in that reality of sacramental marriage. To receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which will help you. In, in living your life of matrimony, I suppose. That's a good start. Yes. Right. Good. All right. You, got, you see, that's all I want you to do is be thinking about this. This is what I want you to do. I want you to think of practical things in your own life as well. Okay. All right. Now, what I did was, um, I forgot to hand these out earlier. I hope I have enough. Now, before we go any further, before we go any further, I, I want to... Um, make a few, let's see, connect a few other statements of the church or, or you know, from the catechism together so we, can, we see where, I, where I'm, I'm taking us. What is this reality that you have heard, I'm sure, quite frequently from the Vatican II documents of the call to holiness? What does the call to holiness mean? Who's calling whom? The church is calling each one of us individually to holiness. Is it, do you think it's the church? The Pope? God. I think it's God. God calls the church to holiness. And, you know, each of us individually. Okay? All right, and what is holiness? But, but the perfection of this conforming of ourselves to Christ. You know, it's not just walking around like this, you know, bumping into walls because you can't see where you're going. All right? But it is living, it is living the life of Christ. Okay? And, and, once again, then living our day-to-day life is assisted by the celebration of the sacraments. So, how many of you know your baptismal anniversary? Mm-hmm. Few of you. Good. All right. All right. I hope by the end of this you all want to go home and look it up and put it on your calendar. Because we say that baptism is, uh, is the gateway to all the other sacraments. This is what they said in 1439. Okay. And what does it mean, this gateway the other, of, to the other sacraments? Um, what are the effects of the sacrament of baptism? What does it mean to you that you were baptized? What's that? We become a child of God. We become a child of God. We, become, we, we, become, we don't become divine, but we're, we somehow we participate in the divine life with the gift of grace. Okay, and so we know that. And that raises our dignity. Even we already know we have a dignity because we, as as God said in Genesis, I make man and my man and woman in my image and likeness. But then, being our becoming a child of God, there's we're raised 
to a different, to yet another dignity. Okay. What else? Okay. We're cleansed of original sin, still have concupiscence, but we're brought, that's how we're brought into the divine life. What else? All right, sanctify. This is the beginning of that holiness, the sanctification. What else? We're co-heirs of the kingdom, right? As a child of God, just as Jesus is the Son of God, and we are a child of God, the heir. And when you think about that idea of co-heirs, it really is a marvelous image. Because what happens usually when you've got heirs? It's like you want to be the only child, right? Because you get it all. But when we're talking about co-heirs, but we're looking trying to convert the world. What are we doing? We're making our little pot smaller? But in the love of God, what he has promised us is infinite. All right? So he's taken us, this is one of those surprises of God. When we talk about being co-heirs, uh, the, the, um, what is opened to us is infinite. Infinite. Okay, what else? We become part of his mystical body. We become part of his mystical body. All right, now that's something in a, very special about baptism. What makes us part of the mystical body? What is it? The indwelling of the Trinity, I suppose. Uh, okay, all right, but we're signed in a very particular way. We do receive the physiological. Okay, all right, that, that's right. That's the second thing. But I wanted to stay with this mystical body because a lot of people, not only in Australia but in the States, don't get all this. Well, how do we become part of the mystical body? What is it about the what makes us part of the mystical body? What do we receive? We can only receive it once. We say we can only be baptized once for this reason. Confirmed once. There's indelible mark. Did you ever hear this word, the character? The character. The character is what changes our soul in a way that we are we we can't see it visually, but we know that we are changed forever. And no matter what these people on the internet that want to, you know, have these certificates, you know, pay a hundred dollars to get a certificate to be unbaptized, do you hear this awful thing? I mean, it's ridiculous. What God has done cannot be changed. They might not be practicing anymore, but you can't unbaptize yourself. You have received a character. This character that is always with us, and it's really, it's really a great gift. Because um, the word character, Augustine was the one who coined this or decided to use it. Because you know he he was he was trying to explain this reality of what it meant to be baptized, and so he was really um, he used the military a lot in terms of making analogies with the Roman army. Okay, even the word sacramentum is actually a Roman, uh, has to do with uh, a military oath. Um, but the word character, the word character was the word that was used to um, talk about the mark, the brand or the tattoo that a Roman soldier would get when he took the oath of fidelity to the Roman, to the Roman emperor. And so if he, you know, so if he... Um, Lost, you know, this was like the equivalent of the ID card. <laughs> you were wearing it, all right. You know, you lost your, you lost your uniform, and you got, you know, and, and then you get back to your company. So how are you going to prove that you're really a Roman soldier? Nobody there knows you, but you have this brand or this tattoo, all right. You get caught by the enemy. 
God help you. All right? Did you ever see Gladiator, the movie Gladiator? Remember the scene with the tattoo? I was so happy when I saw that. <laughs> and I've been teaching with yay. <laughs> All right? We have this Roman general who's taken, and he's a gladiator. And he, and he, keeps, he keeps his arm covered. And then in, in, a, in a sword thing, it gets slashed. No one can figure out why he's such a good swordsman. He's been covering this. No one knows what he is. And then he realizes, he realizes that he almost got identified. And so there's this awful scene about taking off the tattoo. But this is the point that Augustine makes. Just like the soldiers cannot get rid of that tattoo, which is only skin deep, the character, the character will never be taken away. And this is where, this is why, you know, we often, you, you don't never give up praying for somebody who has fallen away from the church, for example. Because God will always recognize his children. And it's like the Holy Spirit is waiting there for a person to be um, apt and to wake up and to, to be able to receive the grace of coming back to him. And so God... So that I mean that's a, that should be a great source of consolation for us that pray for persons that no longer practice the faith, and at the same time for us that he's not going to let us go. Okay, so this character makes us part of the church. It's a very part of the church and a member of <clears throat> excuse me a participation in the divine life. The theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and charity. Why are they called theological? Uh, the direct object and they also come from God right in other words when you think when you think about the theological virtues we often say we talk about the gifts of faith hope and charity they really are gifts they really are gifts because we would we couldn't I mean how could we believe in God how can we believe in a God we can't see except for this infused gift that he gives each of us I mean, it's awesome when we start spend any amount of time thinking about it, you know? And we can say, we have a lot of human faith, you know? Where's the light switch here? You know, the light switch, if I hit that light switch, if I touch that button there, what's going to happen to all these lights? They go out. Well, why does that happen? Because it's part of an electrical circuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I have faith. I'm not an electrical engineer. I have faith in the, in the utility company. That if I press that button, is going to be light. All right, that's human faith. But then we start thinking about what the supernatural faith. What you know, you know, when are we pressed? When we're really pressed. And you know, I can give you. This would be a practical example. When we talk about, um, because we we're given these gifts, and so we have to call on them. You know, we we use this word. We're practicing Catholics. We're exercising the virtues. Well, you have to. You, what does it mean to exercise or to practice? It means put them to, you know, into use. Okay, so you know, I, I said before, um, what about my specialties is marriage? Okay, you have persons that'll say, you know, I cannot accept, I cannot accept the church's teaching on contraception. I can't accept the church's teaching on divorce. Okay, now, what? How can we handle that? How does a person themselves, how could they handle it? They truly, truly 
See this teaching. I teach and does it, you know, I take that as, because those are prime examples. How, how can a person deal with that? I really don't understand why the church, um, etc., etc. Well, the first thing we have to do is engage the virtue of faith and say, the church says this. The church says this, who I believe is founded on Christ and that this is a true teaching. And with my reason, I have to do all I can to study and figure out and to try to understand why this is the case, why it is the church's teaching. But in the meantime, until it becomes clear to me in my reason, I will accept it because it does, because I do believe that it is a, that the that the church will will be giving me the truths that I need to gain heaven. Do you see that? That's a practical way of engaging faith. You know, so we can look at hope. You know, hope. You know, we hope about a lot of things in this life. All right? But they're all pretty finite. So we want to see, you know, when we really, when push comes to shove, how do we, when we're um, uh, in, in what could be painful situations, how do we call on, do we call on the virtue of hope? God has given us this to develop. Okay? So you have to know you have it, and then you develop it. And obviously then, we have the virtue of love. The virtue of love, in a supernatural way, when there are instances where, humanly speaking, it's really hard to love somebody. And when we see with penance, to forgive somebody, how can that happen? But if we engage and ask the Lord, to help us to, by using that virtue of love that we can do when Jesus says, lay down your life for a friend or one, or, or whatever situation we might be. Does that make sense to you? Do you see that? Okay. All right. So those are the three virtues. Anything else we receive? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Very good. Not just a confirmation. It always kills me when I go to these confirmation classes and they're all working hard about the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit as if they never had them before. We get them when we're baptized and we see how we receive another segment, shall we say, or another way of receiving them when we're confirmed. What are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit? I wrote them down to make sure I got them all. Fortitude. What's another name for fortitude? Courage. Okay, so that's one. Another one? Understanding. Understanding. Knowledge. Wisdom. Okay, all right. I'll read it. Wisdom. Understanding is two. Counsel or right judgment. Four is fortitude or courage. Knowledge. Piety. And fear of the Lord. Good. All right. Okay. All right. So we have these supernatural theological virtues, and we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, Thomas Aquinas makes the point of saying that baptism is basically for us to save ourselves, to save our souls. He almost uses the words, it's the me, me, me time. 
just like when we talk about two-year-olds, right? Me, 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 all right? We're little. We're just learning. And so we're given those gifts that are going to allow us to work towards our own salvation, okay? All right, now, one other thing I want to say is that in baptism is when we are, as we say, we're inserted into the Paschal Mystery, that we also participate in the kingship to be king, prophet, and what's the third? Priest. We share in those three realities of Christ. Okay? When we're baptized, then we receive the anointings, for example, that signs that reality. What does it mean that we that we live a priesthood, kingship, and a prophetic life. Did you ever think about that? How are you how do you live this common you know, the word the common priesthood as the Vatican II documents say we talk about it. You What's the common priesthood? You offer up your sufferings in the next Okay, that's one thing. Alright, what else? That's one. What does a priest do? He intercedes. Okay, a priest intercedes, whether he's Catholic or pagan. The priest is always the mediator. The priest is the one who stands between God and others. And we talk about being part of the common priesthood. We say, all right, now I am mediating. So I may offer prayers for someone at Mass. But what else is, I mean, Paul talks about it. Make your bodies a living, a living spiritual, excuse me, spiritual sacrifice. Okay? And so every time we experience something in our lives as a sacrifice, then that is living out the common priesthood. Now, sacrifice could be, you know, oh dear God, this is awful, I have a test today or something, you know. But it also could be, um, the joy of something, just to hand over, just to talk to, you know, to, um, um, to, offer, to offer not only individual circumstances of one's life, but one's whole life as an offering to God. Because what kind of offering is pleasing to God? Is a perfect offering, right? The sweet-smelling offering? Okay, it's a life worthy of God. So as we conform ourselves, as we live in conformity to Christ, and you know you pray a morning offering every day, you're offering all those actions, whatever you do in that day, to the glory of God. And as St. Thomas will say, whenever we give glory to God, it ends up sanctifying you. <laughs> it's nice. You get one side, you always get the other. All right? And so there's that sense of... Uh, of giving glory and praise to God, and at the same time, sort of um, knowing that He's pleased with you, just like when we talk about the pleasing, the pleasing sacrifice, as it will say in Scripture. Okay, all right. So that's priesthood, real quickly. What is it to be um, king or regal? We better say for we are all princesses and princes. How are we? How are we? I mean, there's different ways of looking at this. There's one angle I'd like to give you. Anyone have any ideas? How do you live this? I think it's, Speak. Yeah, I think it's conforming the world 
to God's plan or to Christ using the temporal world Okay, good, good. All right, and the first place we start is with ourselves. Is that when we are king, or you know, we have a you know a king authority over ourselves. What kind of choices do I make? What kind of choices that you know am, am I geared to my peers? Am I pe- or, or am I geared that I am going to make the choices that I desire to make? That I know God wants me to make. And in that way, then, then it just leads on that all of whatever we touch in creation is, is um, shall we say, shepherded, which is where the word like dominion comes from and king comes from. Um, all the way back, we see this in Genesis. Okay, do you see that? that? That's how we live our kingship. And again, that's that sense of dignity of who we are. All right, and then I can just go real quickly. When we fall and we do something we're not happy about, we've sinned, Okay, um, and then asking forgiveness for sin, we're regaining that kingship again. We're, taking, we're, we're, we're facing up to the fact, first of all, we are standing up and say, I failed. I take ownership. I take ownership that I blew this, Lord. And so he takes us, and then he takes us even closer to himself. You know, that's a beautiful thing about the sacraments. Whenever whenever the, the medicinal piece of the sacrament is is when we think about it, it's always to take us closer into relationship with him. Okay, last, prophetic. What's our prophetic role? I'm going to tell you about the end of the world. No. <laughs> what, is it? what is the prophetic role of each of us? Teaching. Teaching. Yeah, that's right. Maureen's here. We should, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it, it's, you know, we're to be, we're to be the witness. What were prophets? What were prophets in the Old Testament? They were always the ones, you know, the kings couldn't stand because it was the kings that heard, you know, that they were not acting the way they were supposed to. Or when the prophets told the rest of the people, you're not taking care of the widows, the orphans, etc. And so they were the ones. So are we supposed to go around on the soapboxes and do this? No, but it's by a way of life. It's Familiaris Consortio, that, that um, document the Holy John Paul II wrote on marriage back in 88, has a wonderful piece about how the family lives the prophetic role. Okay, and I believe that's what a, a lot of all of us here are striving for, to live that prophetic role. What is um, to live the evangelical life as each of our vocations call us to live that? All right, now, um, so we've looked at priest, prophet, and king, gifts of the Holy Spirit, the character. And we're recognizing that when I'm baptized, I'm given a place in the mystical body. It's not like just, okay, um, uh, an assembly line, you know, all these Baptists, and now we have all these Catholics here. But each of us, each of us has a call, right? What did Jeremiah say? You know, or the Lord said to Jeremiah, before, the, before you were in the womb, I called you, right? Okay, and um, um, we can think of the best one I can think of right now. Um, but we have a role within the mystical body. We have a role in the body of Christ that we are called to. That this, when Paul talks about in his epistles, I fill up what is suffering, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That used to get me when I was younger. What in the world? I thought Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. So how does this work? Well, when we come to understand that I have a play, I have a role to play in the mystical body. To strengthen the body and to and 
obviously Christ's uh, Christ's Paschal mystery was perfect, but what does he invite me into? What does he invite me to um, join with him in salvation history? Salvation history still continues as each of us are saving ourselves and hopefully other people along the way. And so we have our role to play in salvation history. So we're baptized. Our first stage is salvation. Then if we look at the the next sacrament, which brings us further into the body of the church, it is, which one? Confirmation. Confirmation. I know pastorally we don't always do it that way, but we say that confirmation is that second sacrament that further brings us into the Catholic Church, into the church. And what are the effects of confirmation? Okay, there's a spiritual maturity. There's a spiritual maturity that's granted us in the graces. What else? Okay, that's where the graces come out. We're going to witness in a new way. We're going to witness in a mature way. Okay, what else? We receive another indelible mark. We have another character in confirmation. We're going to be given a further role, a further responsibility in the body of Christ. And when you said a soldier of Christ, right? Yeah, yeah, that's from the medieval times. The medieval times when, you know, chivalry was all the go, so we're going to be soldiers for Christ. Okay. Um, uh, oh, yeah, and I can tell you something that, 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 that um, actually relates to that, that's in the right of confirmation, which is different here than in the United States, and I was really happy to see it here. Um, after a person is confirmed, this is sort of a tangent, but uh, after a person is confirmed, the, when the bishop seals you with the uh, with the chrism, what what does anyone do you know? You get a slap. What? You get a slap. That's the old right. You get a slap. You get a slap. And where did that evolve from? But this idea of being a soldier of Christ. But that's not its first origin. In other words, the slap evolved from something else. Not from birth. Huh? Not from birth. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Like right now, who's going, to, who's going to a confirmation this year? Anybody? What happened after after the person was sealed? What did the bishop do? Right. Okay. Peace be with you. And how does he do it? He puts, a little, he puts a little tap on the cheek, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, this, we don't do that in the States. We just shake hands. You know, it's a boring shake hands, oh. right? It's like we do at dance. But the origin, the origin is this. It's, we've gone back to the one of the origins of the rites where, you know, the grandfatherly bishop, when he gives a sign of peace, he's not going to shake hands with somebody. He just gives him a gentle tap on the cheek, you know, like a little grand, you know, like a grandfather, grandmother, sit down you, you know. All right, um, that's the sign of peace, and then evolved into a slap, because we're soldiers of Christ now, so we got to show it, you know. So don't give me a little pat, just give me a slap and prove how strong I am. All right. In the new rite, it was re- it went back to the sign of peace at that point. But I had only seen it, as, as I know it in the States, with a handshake. Mm-hmm. Well, I was in the United States during World Youth Day, and we were watching, we were watching the Mass, where the, stu- where the people were, bat- were confirmed at Randwick, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And when Pope Benedict 
gave the sign of peace, I probably shrieked. <laughs> that's what they used to do. And then I found out that's what you typically do here in Australia, which is, um, but anyway, that's, all right. What's that? Habits man, you know, have that too. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but that's a little bit, just to let you, that's how that evolved, that part of the ceremony. Okay. Okay. So now, when we talk about confirmation and we receive graces to witness more to Christ, um, you can make the analogy of those of you who have children, you know, when they were little, what kind of um, what kind of things did they do around the house for you? Not much, right? You know, you might have had them do little things, but you're not going to give them huge responsibilities, right? They're not going to do it right. Or even to cross the street, right? Make sure you're, you're always holding mommy's hand before you cross the street. Because they're little. And that's all they, you, you just knew how much they could do. Now, as we get older, physically, intellectually, we can say the same thing about ourselves in the body of Christ. That, as humanly, we become more mature and you look at your kids and you say, you know what, you're going to have the keys to the car tonight. All right? You say that, but you, you obviously, if you didn't trust them, you wouldn't give them those keys. And you know they can handle it. You know they can do it. Okay? That in confirmation, we're be, being given another role within the body of Christ. That as Jesus said to the apostles at the end of the Gospels, go forth and preach and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in order to be able to do that. We, too, have to be gifted with the Holy Spirit in order to do these things that he's sending us out to do. And so, once again, this is one of these ethereal, we're doing the work of Christ, or we're witnessing the work. How do we know what our work is? How do we know what our work is in the body of Christ? You know, do I just wake up one morning and say, I know it, I'm going out, I'm going to be Don Quixote, right? (laughs) How do we know? We have persons around us that will help us know what to do. And what else, most importantly, is that we have to listen to the Holy Spirit in prayer. And so one of the, I believe, one of the biggest, Um, realities with the gift of confirmation is engaging with those seven gifts of the Holy Spirit that were given in a new way that knowledge and courage and all those and we have to know how to pray we have to know what the Spirit is saying to us and how we are to make the impact to do what we are to do in this world for to be to conform ourselves to Christ. And it only comes through discernment, and discernment is prayer. You know, and, and so it's, it's, it's our own private prayer, but then also being able to speak with others. Okay? Do you, do you all see that? We don't, I don't think we tell our confirmation students enough about prayer, praying, and how they have to know what this, learn, learn how to read what the Holy Spirit is saying in their lives by using the gifts of the Holy Spirit that they receive in confirmation, so that they know, we know, not just they, what we are to do in life. Okay? Is that that good? Okay. Um, So, 
What are the effects of, of the Eucharist in our life? Don't get spinned out with that. Right. Say that. It increased sanctifying grace makes us whole. We're nourished. We're nourished spiritually in order to accomplish the things that we see in prayer that we have to do. Okay, what else? Okay, our sins, our venial sins are forgiven. Okay, so once again, we're brought closer to Christ when we receive Holy Communion. It's body, soul, excuse me, body, blood, soul, and divinity. All right, we become, we get inserted again into the divine life. What else? Is the pl- okay, it gives us hope. We live in hope. Okay, the pledge of everlasting life. Anything else? Yeah, you should think more positive and have more faith in God. Yeah, that, right. like, With God's grace, I'll be able to overcome the trial or whatever. Yeah, okay, yeah, we're nourished. We're yes. nourished I'll in order so. then, yeah. good, good, yeah. in order to accomplish yes. what God asks of us to do. So we can do that. Yes. And, and, then we're, and then we see how we're using our virtues at the same time as yes. well, okay? All right. I also, beside the reception of Holy Communion is when we, you know, we physically receive the body and blood of our Lord, but we look at the rest of the Eucharist as well. And we, when you think of the Eucharistic prayer, 1370 in the Catechism is a great paragraph. It says that it is as if we are at the foot of the cross with Mary every time we're at Mass. Okay, now, we could spend a lot of time on that, but the, what, the two things I want to point out is, is that that means that we are as a participant right there in that self-giving of Christ, the self-emptying of Christ before to the Father. And not only are we a participant, but we're also an observer. An observer, that means this is something we can imitate, we're strengthened when we receive our Lord, but we see what we're strengthened for. How am I to be self-given? All right. Now, if I if I can jump, I'm doing a little jumping because uh, we can't pigeonhole the sacraments. What's the first thing a married couple do together as a married couple? Yes, but even before Holy Communion, they're present to the Eucharistic prayer. They're present to this, this awesome reality of Christ's self-giving, which is what they have just prophesied each other in whatever that means. And so they're given that imitation, and then they receive the body and blood of Christ. Okay, it's a very powerful, when we think about, we think about why the, the elements of the liturgies are situated the way they are, it just explodes for what it can mean as we look at them more and more deeply. Alright, so we know that the Eucharist is the source and summit, so much of of the faith, and of all the sacraments. So as we talk about the sacraments, the other sacraments, I think it also feeds into uh, your reflections on Eucharist. Penance. And so we look to receive Holy Communion at least, you know, as frequently as we can. As frequently as we can. Now, we have penance because we fall. Okay, the second plank of salvation, as the early father would say, church fathers, the, sh- um, of the shipwreck of sin. Um, what? So we always, you know, we can say right off the bat that sal- that we have forgiveness of sins, we have reconciliation with God, and reconciliation with the church. 
All right. What, what, knowing we have that reconciliation, what other kinds of effects of the graces of penance are there? Um, gives you strength to the old sin. Like if, you, if you're confessing one sin, yeah. <coughs> and it's, um, yeah. Right. Habit, habit that breaks it. Right. It helps us. It helps us overcome the temptations and to stay away from the near occasions of sin, as it says. Okay. That's very good. Okay. What else? And that's the thing we don't talk often about enough about. I mean, we have because we have to make the willed choice. We have the grace, but we have to cooperate with the grace. That's what's in all these sacraments. It's the free will choice of cooperating with these awesome effects that we have to engage with. Yes? Um, you receive sanctifying grace and you renew your friendship with God. Right. Okay, we make those proactive choices besides becoming holy. So if we say we're becoming holy or sanctified, what else does that mean? But that, consider this, that if someone... If someone does something against me that's hurtful, and then they come and ask for forgiveness, that I will actually be have the grace to say I do forgive you. If we're becoming more like Christ, what is the, you know one of the things that's most clear in the Gospels of how He says you know forgive them, Father, that we learn how to forgive others. We learn how to forgive others and we also learn are given the, the ability to ask for forgiveness if I've done something against another. Now, this is particularly keen to the sacrament of marriage. When two when a man and a woman are growing to grow in union with each other and you know how through the <clears throat> Rip-roaring days of you know, life, different things that occur. That by go by the sacrament of penance, that's also going to allow a relationship to develop in a very deep way between a husband and a wife. When you think of, um, um, you know, we talk about, for example, betrayal in a marriage. And humanly speaking, that has to be one of the hardest things that a spouse could say, I forgive you. But a Catholic spouse is to forgive a spouse, another spouse for betrayal. We could say obligated. And how in the world can we do that except with supernatural means? The graces of matrimony, which is to bind the couple together, but also with this power, the power that's knowing I have been forgiven by God, that I have I have to, I have to find it within myself to forgive this person. It's also recognizing with penance that we call it confession because it's confession of sins, but it's also the fact of confession is that we are confessing a merciful God. We are confessing the fact that we know that God will forgive our sins. And that's a great, again, that's a positive witness when we talk about witness. Because many people, you know, don't want to talk to a priest and, you know, spill their guts or whatever. But we recognize that 
I, I do go to confession because I believe in the forgiveness of God. And that can be a great help for individuals to know that that's true. There is also um, an act of humility. Yeah. Um, yeah. yourself twice. So we are doing it. Yeah. Right. Okay, an act of humility. Right. Because that's what I'm saying. Because we're taking ownership. I blew this. I blew the, uh, the regal sense that I should be living. And I recognize that. And God is willing to take me back. All right. So I've gone through I've gone through the sacraments of initiation and penance and um, matrimony very you know, in that in this, in the amount of time we have to again tell you about things that you've been living in the sacraments, but by bringing them forward, I hope that you know you might in another um, as, as you're living your life that you're able to call on or think about the effects of the sacraments in such a way that it does empower you in the sense of doing things that you wouldn't believe you could do humanly, because you couldn't. But with the help of God, we talk about with the help of God, we do. And so that when he gives us a challenge, he's, he's only desiring to take us closer to himself. And we're brought closer to him by his gifts. And so I think now that's a full hour, so I'll stop there. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Sister Moira de Bono. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.